Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. Scott on, mate. Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about neutral Morrisnet. Uh, this is one of the most bizarre examples of historical uh, European political geography. I'm sure, you know, if you've seen a map of Europe, especially a historical one, you've, you've seen it's just like it's an ab- absolute mess. The border's all over the place. Even today in some areas, the borders are just an absolute, I don't know what, it, the state of them is. If, if this were a bedroom, your mum would be yelling at you to clean it up every single day of the week. It's that messy. But neutral Morrisnet was a very, um, uh, very unique, very interesting circumstance where where the borders of, of a couple of different European nations sort of uh, shook out in a way that created an incredibly, an incredibly entertaining and interesting piece of history here. It's not very well known. Um, it was this small, thin, triangular sliver of land that was sandwiched between the United Kingdom of the Netherlands and Prussia after the redrawing uh, of Europe's borders, uh, which happened at the end of the of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the, the thing was about this this little uh, sliver of land, this little you know thing called N- N- Neutral Morissette, uh, no one could agree which country this land should be a part of. And for over 100 years, this, this sort of dispute, or not really dispute, but this, this lack of agreement as to who should own this little uh, sliver of land, uh, it, 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 exi- it meant that it, it existed as this, I don't even know what, to be honest, this, this, this area, this region. Both the Netherlands and Prussia administered it. It was sort of joint administration there. They administered uh, neutral Morris Net. But, but this became further complicated later on when uh, the Belgian Revolution happened in the 1830s. So the United Kingdom of the Netherlands got split up and Belgium took over over half of it, and then Prussia levelled up into Germany in 1871. So there was a lot of stuff going on here. Long story short, basically, uh, the geography and the politics of this tiny little scrap of land were extremely complicated, and they led to all sorts of, you know, very interesting and very entertaining situations throughout its lifetime. That's the long story short. The long story long is basically, well, you know, the episode of this podcast you're about to listen to. Neutral Morris Net, it was famous for a, a bunch of different things. Boring stuff like zinc production, snore, um, we'll, we'll talk about that, but but much more exciting stuff like smuggling, gambling, tax evasion, prostitution, uh, Esperanto, all sorts of stuff like that. It actually be- almost became the homeland of this constructed language, uh, Esperanto, led to some pretty interesting consequences as well as we'll talk about. A lot to get across. Safe to say there's a lot to get across with uh, Neutral Morris Net, uh, but before we get to it, I want to say thank you to alert listener Michiel Gutschalks. I mean, I'd apologise, Michiel, for butchering your name, but the last three letters are literally C-K-X, so I don't know what you're expecting there, to be honest. But uh, Michiel, out of Belgium, uh, maybe he knows, you know, knows a little bit about this story as well. His name is largely unpronounceable, like, like a lot of Flemish and Dutch names. They don't seem to know what letters mean in that part of the world. But thank you so much for uh, sending in Neutral Morris Net as a topic suggestion. I had a, very, I had a great time learning about it, and hopefully uh, everyone will have a, have a great time listening to, uh, to its story. So let's get underway. We're going all the way back here to 1815, 1815 and the Congress of Vienna. You might not have heard of the Congress of Vienna, but I'll tell you what, bloody important piece of history it is. Very, very important indeed. The Congress basically redrew the borders of the entire continent of Europe. Millions of little agreements and compromises, changes and shifts. 
that established the European power system that would, you know, largely speaking, see us through to the First World War. And even after that, you know, a lot of influence of the uh, the, the Congress of Vienna still even today. With the uh, the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815, this new, it was called the Concert of Europe, this power system, uh, the political system there, uh, established again by the Congress of Vienna. It governed the politics and the affairs of, of an entire continent of people uh, for the next century. And as I say, continues to influence uh, things even today. You know, it dealt with stuff like uh, the Papal States, the, the area that belonged to the Catholic Church, the, the free access of shipping along the ri- rivers like the Rhine. All sorts of really boring, you know, boring history stuff there. But we're not we're not talking about that today. We're here for the good bits. Here for the good bits, one of which, of course, is neutral Morris Net. The Congress of Vienna, it involved, you know, all of these delegations, diplomats, negotiators, ministers, all these blokes there. They're, try- they're hanging out in Vienna and they're all trying to, you know, they're squabbling. They're squabbling over this town or that river, trying to figure out, you know, who's going to get this mountain or this particular natural resource or, or you know, all this sort of stuff. And they're all trying to come to an agreement. But there's one sticking point. Well, there's actually lots of sticking points, but we're going to talk about one sticking point today. Um, relatively minor one in the grand scheme of things. It's this tiny scrap of land between the newly established United Kingdom of the Netherlands and Prussia. Now, United Kingdom of the Netherlands, uh, today the Benelux country, so it involved uh, the, the Netherlands as we have them today, plus Belgium, plus Luxembourg, right? That was all wrapped up into one kingdom, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. Obviously, that changed. We'll talk about that. But at this stage, right, sandwiched between these two nations is this tiny little area called Morris Net, right? So, broadly speaking, Prussia and the Netherlands, they're agreeing on most of the rest of the border. There are not too many changes that are happening elsewhere, of course. They're you know, picking up a little bit of territory here and there from France. But between Prussia and, and the Netherlands, they're not too much of an argument. However, this little district known as Morosnet causing a real issue. Only tiny, tiny little region. Very, very small. Couple of forests, a few small towns. Not too much to get excited about. What's the problem here? problem is... That there is also an extremely valuable zinc mine right in the middle of it, right in the middle of Morrisnet, and both the Netherlands and Prussia are very, very keen to get their hands on this mine. Zinc is critical in the production of brass, and there's not a lot of it kicking around. You know, in fact, back in 1815, the British were the only people with a reliable source of zinc in in, in Europe there because they had a little uh, little uh, sort of joint in uh, in Bristol where they could produce it. So. You know, despite it only being a very tiny little area, uh, it is it is a, a, a hugely important strategic resource. And and neither ne- the Netherlands or Prussia they don't want to give up Morosnet uh, and you know its valuable zinc to the other side. Now look, I don't know you know exactly how things went at the Congress of Vienna, but the Dutch and the Prussians right they absolutely they just cannot come to any kind of arrangement. At all they're sitting there they're arguing they're yelling at each other whatever else. Maybe all the other blokes you know they're sick of waiting for the get on with it, stop arguing about it. They come on, come on, you fellas, just let's get these bloody things signed. You can figure it out later. I'm tired of this nonsense. I want to get home and have me dinner. Come on, come on. In any case, I don't know why they didn't come to an agreement. Well, you know, I don't know what, what the procedure was for them not being able to come to agreement. But both the Netherlands and Prussia, they they do agree to drop the issue of Morrisnet, the, the negotiations surrounding this area, from the Congress of Vienna. And so when this big agreement is signed, Morrisnet is all of a sudden, it's not owned by anyone. Because neither of them can agree on which side it belongs to, the Congress of Vienna actually basically leaves this little scrap, this little sliver of land belonging to no one. Classic procrastination move. Both the Dutch and the Prussians, they decided they'll do it. Deal with it later. I'll, you know, I'll get to it. I'll burn that bridge when we come to it. You know, we, we need to finish this this Congress of Vienna. We need to get this done. And, and that's basically exactly what happens. Uh, they agree to meet later on and to figure it out. But here's the really good part. They do meet, right, a couple of months later. And by July 1816, they have, well, I was going to say they got it sorted out. They haven't really got it sorted Kind of got it sorted out, right? Morrisnet was this sort of, uh, uh, you know, little chunk of territory there. That then gets split into three areas. One part, the uh, the the western part, becomes part of uh, the, King, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. The eastern part becomes Prussian. 
But they strip down the middle of it, right? This tiny little triangular strip of land that contains the zinc mine. It's just three and a half square kilometers in size. It remains neutral. It doesn't belong to either of them. Once again, they just cannot come to an agreement about the mine. And this is after months and months and months of attempts at negotiation. It's time for another classic bit of procrastination. The Treaty of Aachen, right, it has them agree on the two other bits being chopped up and given to the Netherlands, the Prussia respectively. No worries, these two other bits, that's easy. But it leaves this little strip of land as a neutral, unowned territory. It's now named appropriately neutral Morris Net. Neither nation is allowed to send their military into it, and they agree to set up a joint administration to co-govern the area and split the zinc production of the mine between them, or the profits of it at least. They've got a company to set up managing the mine, and the money that comes out of that mine is going to be split between the Prussians and uh, and the Dutch there. The delegations agree that this is a, a workable temporary solution until they can figure out, you know, what the bloody hell they're going to do about it long term. This is very much the older. Uh, you know, again, we'll figure it out later on. Let's go down the pub. It's, it'll be fine. The thing was, they never did. Well, sorry, they obviously they got to the pub. Obviously, that was the most important thing. They, they managed to do that. They didn't ever actually properly solve the, the problem, the question of uh, neutral Morris Net. And this temporary solution ended up becoming a very permanent solution. Neutral Morris Net now existed as this tiny but extremely bit, a valuable bit of no man's land. It was a political stalemate. Essentially, it was just a political stalemate between the Dutch and the Prussians. Neither wanted to do anything that would allow the other to increase influence in the region. And so they're stuck, right? Because they want all the you know juicy profits from this this zinc mine they don't want to cause it they don't want to cause an international incident about it so they just agree all right fine we'll just we'll just figure it out later in the meantime while you know the the miners crapping out zinc like this we'll just uh, rake in the profits both nations appointed commissioners but for the you know to oversee the the governance of the the, the co-governance of the region or the, the territory there but for the most part these commissions were extremely hands off they didn't really involve themselves in the day-to-day affairs uh, you know of the of the territory at all they didn't even really they never even really visited it, to be honest. It was emblematic of the approach taken by both the Dutch and the Prussians. Very much hands-off, very much very laissez-faire, lax approach to the governance of this uh, this little territory there. And again, the miners just continuing to spew out zinc at extremely profitable rates, and no one really wanted to mess with this, you know, delicate balance and upset the apple cart, well, upset the zinc mine, the zinc cart, I guess. So that's all well and good for the Dutch and the Prussians. They're fine. They're laughing. They're rolling around in their, in their gold, in their zinc, having a great time there. But what about the people actually living in neutral Morrison itself? Weren't too many of them. Only, you know, there were four figures at least, maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand people living there. So not, not a huge number of people, but all the same... These, you know, these people had some, you know, by the way, they were known quite excellently as the neutrals, right? That's the demonym for the people living there, the neutrals, which I think is fantastic. But these people, they've got a lot of, you know, rather burning questions they need answered. For example, what nationality are they? Do the men have to do the compulsory military service? Can they be conscripted? And if so, with which nation? To whom do they pay their taxes? There are all these questions that are just all of a sudden don't have an answer, right? And even better than this... The boundaries of neutral uh, neutral Morris Net were drawn so that they bifurcated people's houses. You've got blokes crossing international borders to go from their lounge room through the dunny to, to you know pinch out a turd. Imagine this: you got a passport check while you're heading to bed after having you know bloody brushed your teeth, getting ready for bed there in your jammies. Like this is it's a it's a pretty unbelievable situation. But it's only it, of course it only gets more unbelievable from here. There's no official currency. People are using just kind of whatever's lying around at first, whether it was Dutch or Prussian or whatever else like that. Eventually, 
the French franc becomes the de facto currency of neutral Morris net, although at one point later on the 1840s, they did try to make their own money, which failed miserably. But the absolute best thing, the funniest thing about this whole situation here was the legal system of neutral Morris net, right? The legal system of this little scrap of land. Now, obviously, neither the Netherlands nor Prussia will simply allow the other to, you know, take charge and start enforcing the laws of, of their own nation in uh, in neutral Morris net. So the Netherlands, they don't want Prussian, the Prussian rule of law, and the Prussians, they don't want Dutch rule of law. So the legal system defaults back to the most recently previously enforced set of laws. And you'll remember, we've just finished fighting the Napoleonic Wars here. So the last previously agreed upon set of laws that had been enforced in neutral Morris Net, this region, was the Napoleonic Code. The Napoleonic Code remained the law of the land in neutral Morris Net for its entire existence, which, as we will discover, had some pretty bloody hilarious consequences. So, outside of this, Neutral Morris Net had its own mayor, lived in the small town near the mine, the town's name, well, I say, okay, the, the, the town's name was uh, was Kelmus, but I say it was near the mine. I mean, everything in Neutral Morris Net is, is, is near the mine. It was that bloody small that, you know, you could chuck a stone from wherever you're standing. You, you're probably going to hit a, a miner as they come out of the, uh, out of the shaft there. But... Um, as I say, there was a mayor responsible for the day-to-day governance of, of this little territory. This include the management of uh, Neutral Morris Net's law enforcement officer, uh, not officers. No, I didn't misspeak. The officer, uh, Neutral Morris Net, was so small that for a long time it only had a single cop. And this cop couldn't even arrest anyone because there was no jail and no lockup. So it is safe to say that things were pretty bloody weird in this little, you know, pseudo-country, this little territory there. But I'll tell you this, wasn't all that bad for the neutrals. Once the dust had settled and once the, you know, things had kind of resolved themselves and they'd figured out how things were going to run here, it was actually in some regards pretty bloody good for the people living in neutral Morris Net. You know those questions they had about tax and conscription and, you know, all that sort of stuff? The answer from both the Dutch and the uh, the, the Prussian administrators was, uh, yeah, nah, look, uh, no idea, just sort of do whatever, eh? It doesn't matter. So this means that the neutrals, they hardly pay any tax at all, right? There's no tax on anything except for luxury goods. The men aren't being conscripted, so they're bloody loving, they're having a great time. And the entire legal system is based on an increasingly outdated set of laws that aren't changing with the times. As new things come in, they're completely, completely unregulated because they're not covered by the Napoleonic Codes. Within the first 10 years of Neutral Morris Net's existence, its population doubles in size. Young men are moving there specifically to avoid conscription. Smugglers are setting up shop there, smuggling alcohol across the border there like that because there are no border checks. There's no, on this, you know, internationally disagreed upon territory, right? There's no one checking, there's no customs, there's no border protection, anything else like that. And even better yet, there are criminals who are fleeing to neutral Morris Net because there were no extradition treaties because it's not strictly speaking, a country that belongs to anywhere. The police from Belgium or or from Prussia or from anywhere else, France or anywhere else like that, they had to seek the joint approval of both administrations in order to enter this territory. And so criminals would get there and they'd just be, they'd hide behind the red tape. You know, the French cops wouldn't want to try to get into this area because it's just too much, so many forms to sign, so many bureaucratic uh, hurdles to jump over. So all of a sudden it was this, this haven for... I guess, you know, it was a very, a very, I guess it's a suitable arrangement for, for those of a, uh, 
flexible moral disposition, a haven for people who, uh, you know, sort of saw the world in shades of grey rather than uh, black and white. Anyway, this suits the people who are living there fine. It suits the, the workers and, and indeed the owners of the uh, of the zinc mine there. The zinc mine is going from strength to strength, offering easy employment to all these people who are coming there like that. And despite the sort of near anarchy in neutral Morris Net, neither of the two nations that are co-governing the region, they don't want to get too involved with this, you know, the internal affairs there because, first of all, things are just kind of working. And second of all, they've got a really good thing going on with this zinc mine and they don't want the status quo to change. And besides, as I say, things aren't that bad. If you don't mind a, you know, a bit of smuggling, a bit of gambling, a bit of prostitution here and there, the mine employs almost half the people in Neutral Morris Net and it's building houses, medical facilities, banks, churches, schools for the neutrals to enjoy. It's investing in social clubs and, and all of this sort of thing as well like that. On top of that, there's people coming in, bringing their money, enterprising individuals that uh, were taking advantage of the... Um, rather lax legal situation to set up, you know, various wonderfully sinful establishments of all kinds there. So debauchery is, you know, is is rife here. But again, it just kind of works. There aren't too many people living there and everyone is just kind of getting along in this stateless, hedonistic paradise there. And it's just, they're just making money hand over fist because of this zinc mine. So this was the nature of neutral Morris Net. Essentially, a kid kind of left to run free while inattentive parents do very little to, you know, cooperate in raising it. Life in Neutral Morris Net was cheap, it was unregulated, its citizens largely left to their own devices, and the unique situation of Neutral Morris Net had some extremely entertaining consequences throughout its history. So let's take a brief tour of this history and have a chat about some of the most important things that took place throughout the existence of this small territory, Neutral Morris Net. So, Throughout the 1820s, as I say, Neutral Morris Net was filled with smugglers, draft dodgers, people who were generally unenthusiastic about, you know, governments and laws and, and things like that. But this culture, it wasn't limited to the common folk either. It wasn't just the people who were sort of creeping in across the border because in 1827, it emerged that the operators of the zinc mine itself, in true Neutral Morris Net fashion, hadn't been paying rent for years and years and years, Right. The mine was enormously profitable and the operators seemed to have hoped that both, you know, the Netherlands and Prussia wouldn't notice, just like with parents. You know, you can trick one of them into thinking that the other gave you permission for something. You get away with anything like this. But it all came unstuck in 1827, as I say, as both Prussia and the Netherlands realise that they haven't been, you know, the mine hasn't been paying rent for years and years. And they sue the operators to seize the mine and uh, and recoup this, uh, you know, the rent uh, that, that hasn't been paid. Now, the operators, you know, they're caught up in these legal proceedings and they are desperate to salvage the situation and avoid financial ruin. So as, the, uh, as this sort of court case goes on and as the governments are battling for control of this, uh, you know, of this mine, the operators, they secretly approach King William I of the Netherlands, the Dutch king. They secretly come to him and say, listen here, Your Majesty, listen, we'd be interested in cutting our losses and selling you the mine personally, right? So it's yours for, for you know, forever and always if you just let us get out of this sort of legal quagmire that we forget about that rent situation, we'll move on, right? Now, the Dutch king very into this idea, very much into this idea he is because it, it would secure Dutch control of the supply of, of supply of zinc. So he says, absolutely no worries, boys. Look, we'll take it off your hands. Obviously, we've got to get the Prussians on side about this or maybe we can just sneak it under the radar. We'll see how we go. It's going to be a long process, but absolutely, I'll tell you what, you'll be rolling in Dutch gold if you're going to sell us this, uh, this zinc mine. So the negotiations, they take a long time. Not sure what held them up, but after three years, in, in 1830, by the time this whole thing is wrapped up, the operators, they're ready to sell 
at a significant loss, I will add, a significant loss, uh, but they're ready to sell to the Dutch, and the Dutch, of course, are loving this idea. They're going to finally have control of the, the zinc mine privately, uh, so the, the Prussians uh, you know, aren't going to have as much of a... Their, their snoot isn't going to be quite as deep into this particular cash register. But then, all of a sudden... Disaster for the Dutch here. Disaster for the Dutch. History chucks a curveball at this whole situation with the onset of the Belgian Revolution. The Belgian Revolution arrives in 1830. Belgium tries to secede from the United Kingdom of the Netherlands and actually successfully does this. They go on to secure their independence in 1831. This means now, of course, that it is the Belgians, not the Dutch, that are in charge of Neutral Morris Net, obviously in partnership with the Prussians. But the, the area, Neutral Morris Net, it borders onto what became Belgium, not the Netherlands. So the, the, the Netherlands, King William I, He's lost control of, of neutral moral. I mean, they didn't relinquish their claim on it until about 1839, but that's beside the point. In you know, the de facto uh, government or, or co-government, at least, of uh, of neutral Morris Net is the Belgians and not the Dutch. So this deal it falls through, right? It stops the sale of the mine to the Dutch, and it gives the operators time to actually salvage the situation. They find some French investors uh, so as to pay all the rent that they'd skipped out on over the years, and this uh, this satisfies both the Belgians and the Prussians, who again want the profit or the profit profitable zinc uh, to continue to be dug out of the ground. And, you know, not really in the spirit of Neutral Morris Net, I would say, you know, paying back all this rent. But I tell you what, they are bloody glad that they did, the mining operators, because just around the corner, just around the corner of history here is the Industrial Revolution. And the mining company, after having been bailed out by these French investors, they go public, they make a new agreement with, uh, with Belgium and with Prussia. And from there on out, they are kicking goals with both feet. As we head into the 1850s, the Industrial Revolution kicks off and the demand for zinc skyrockets. The neutrals couldn't dig it out of the ground fast enough. It was like a little gold rush. It was a zinc rush. Young men from Belgium, from Prussia, from other surrounding nations, they are racing to neutral Morris Net to, one, chase that paper, obviously. They want a, they want a little slice of that zinc-flavoured pie. Number two, avoid conscription, of course, because that's obviously still a possibility here. And even number three, actually, sort of linked here, or 2A, if you like, avoid criminal prosecution. There are some people who are who are fleeing, you know, the, the misdeeds of a former life to come to an area that, again, has no extradition treaties with any of the surrounding areas. So this huge influx of immigrants leads to uh, many other, other people also hoping to profit off the coattails of the zinc industry there. And all of a sudden... Taverns, brothels, gambling establishments, and all sorts of you know venues of debauchery spring up to service the growing population. Actually, I'll stop you just for one second. When I say growing population, I should probably put things in perspective. There were only two thousand five hundred people living there in the eighteen fifties. So twenty five hundred people, not a huge population, I guess. But you know, in 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 terms of in in, in the context of the place itself, quite large. But again, it doesn't sound like much. Remember that we're talking about a territory, right, that is around the size of New York Central Park. It's really, really, really small, right? And so this population of, you know, 2,500 people, comparatively speaking, a little larger than you might think. Anyway, this growing population, it also results in, uh, in a small level of political reform. This is very boring. We'll get through it very quickly. Rather than just the mayor... Uh, in 1854, Neutral Morris Net also gains a 10-person town council. Uh, this council wasn't voted in by the people. The Napoleonic Code makes no allowances, no voting rights, nothing like that. So it's just appointed, uh, you know, of course, appointed by the mayor or by the commissioners or whoever else they like that. 
Um, although one interesting thing about the council was every 10 years, half the council was fired by lot, randomly. They would just randomly fire half the council every 10 years, which I think is uh, it's a pretty funny way to decide who's in charge, I reckon. Anyway, um, the zinc rush, uh, it lasted a good while, but by the end of the 1860s, there's bad news. It's clear that the mine is not going to last forever. In fact, after a joint inspection by both the Belgians and the Prussians in 1869, they finally actually begin to realise that they have to start talking about the long-term fate of Neutromorris Net. They start to negotiate carving it up uh, between them after all. So this was, you know, this was years and years, decades after uh, the people had sat down in 1816, tried, you know, the Treaty of Aachen, tried to figure out what was going on. They're finally picking up the, where, where, those, uh, you know, where the predecessors led off, left off and, and, and trying to negotiate some kind of settlement here. But this was not only opposed by the, by the neutrals themselves, the people who lived in Neutral Morris Net, they didn't want it to be divided up, carved up between the two nations, but also the mining company. The mining company is an enormously profitable business enterprise, digging, you know, a, a dwindling supply, but a supply nonetheless of zinc out of the ground in a tax-free environment. They absolutely do not want this area to come under the jurisdiction of either the Prussians or the Belgians because they don't want to have to start paying tax on the stuff, on, on all the business that they're doing here. So what this mining company does when all the, there's this talk, of course, they know that if they can keep the money flowing, it's in the interest of both the Prussians and the Belgians to not carve up this territory between themselves because they'll both get a slice of the pie here. Right. So what the mining company does is start looking for contingency plans, start looking for other ways to keep themselves profitable so Mutual Morris Net wouldn't be broken up. They start to import zinc ore from elsewhere around the world outside of Europe using their facilities to smelt it and turn a profit that way. And this was enough, luckily, to stop the Belgians and the Prussians from chomping up Neutral Morris Net. There may have been other reasons. It's not exactly clear why the Belgians and the Prussians abandoned the idea of uh, of dividing Neutral Morris Net, but abandoned the plans they did. And uh, as we move into the, um, the 1870s, 1880s here, even as the zinc dries up, um, the uh, you know the Prussians, the Belgians, largely keeping their hands off this territory. However, finally, at, at long last, the zinc production tailed off well and truly. The mine was finally exhausted around 1885. Now, by this stage, Prussia no longer exists. That's another important thing we have to talk about. The Franco-Prussian War had been fought and won by the Prussians in 1871. Uh, and now, by this stage, after winning that war, they've now accumulated enough land and enough prestige to establish themselves as an empire, the Empire of Germany, just like in Crusader Kings 2. Easy game. It's, well, actually a very difficult game. If you've ever played it, you'll know how difficult it is. Anyway, it's unclear uh, what the Belgians and the Germans want to do with Neutromorris. Now, now that the zinc has dried up, they don't really have a good a, a good sort of plan moving forward as to how they're going to they're going to deal with things. Other things have changed as well. Um, the uh, the Belgians, uh, Belgian and German citizens, they can't flee to Neutromorris Net now to avoid conscription. Both nations have started to conscript their own citizens uh, who have moved there anyway. And largely speaking, there's a pressure within Neutromorris Net itself to sort of get with the times, I guess you could say. And it's around this time in the 1880s that the neutral Morris net independence movement begins because of what's happening with the zinc mine because they can taste change on the wind right there are people within neutral Morris net that are starting to think you know of maybe taking their destiny into their own hands and one of the one of the people who's wanted this leading figure here is a bloke by the name of dr wilhelm molly now he sets up an organization a political organization that seeks to secure independence for this tiny little you know quote unquote country this little uh, this little territory that is seeking its own nationhood by now 
New Tremorrow Senate has a uh, its own council, as I say. It's got a, a little flag of its own as well. It's a, a horizontal tricolour. It's got black, white, blue there like that, stripes uh, from uh, from left to right. And uh, it, it is sort of uh, growing. It's 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 getting more and more of the trappings of nationhood, despite its in its tiny. I was going to say enormously small size. Yes, extremely diminutive size here. Now, Dr. Molly is big, big into stamp collecting. He loves collecting his stamps, he does. And so the other thing that he tries to do as part of this organisation, part of, you know, driving towards independence, is he starts to uh, establish a neutral postal service uh, to help legitimise the idea of Neutral Morrisnet being uh, its own nation. And in doing this, he actually prints stamps that are labelled, you know, Neutral Morrisnet, whatever else. And interestingly, these stamps today are amongst the rarest and most valuable stamps. Stamp collectors around the world prize these stamps. They're hugely, hugely valuable indeed because of their rarity, because of their scarcity. Unfortunately for Dr. Molly and the cause of, uh, of neutral independence there, um, he was thwarted uh, by the ridiculous legal system. The Napoleonic Code gets him once again here because after hearing about the efforts set up to uh, efforts to uh, to set up a postal service, there the Belgians and the Germans they put together they put their heads together and say, "Look, listen, we can't we can't be we can't can't deal with this. Can't have this happening." And they go through the Napoleonic Code and find a section that prohibited interference with established postal services. And so, using this section of the Napoleonic Code, they were able to perfectly legally able to shut down this nascent attempt at establishing nationhood by closing down the neutral postal service because of course there is already an established one co-managed by the Belgians and the Prussians. Now it's probably worth mentioning here about some of the other long-term effects of the Napoleonic Code at this point. It's it, it's it's still the law of the land of course. It's still the uncontested law of the land. Um, and it means that the neutrals are being governed by a set of laws that is so absurdly outdated. There is no right to vote in Neutral Morris Net because there is no mention of that sort of thing in the Napoleonic Code. There are no child labour laws, meaning that a lot of children are working in or at or around the mines, right? Very, very dangerous indeed. This sort of stuff is, is well and truly fa- you know, being phased out at this stage. No, Nothing about compulsory education. It's fair to say that Neutral Morris Net was, was pretty backwards, a, a fair way behind the times in a lot of areas. Even, I mean, even worse when you looked at actually some of the, you know, the, the, the punishments, some of the penal, the, the, the penalties that could be dealt out as a result of criminal activity. Um, some of the punishments in the Napoleonic Code were ridiculously severe. They involved flogging um, and even imprisonment for just, for just tiny, tiny little, uh, you know, very, very minor crimes there. So this meant that as we head towards the 20th century, the neutrals, they worked to modernise and improve the standing of their little territory, despite their enormously archaic legal system. Uh, There are a bunch of public works projects, uh, footpaths, streetlights, drainage, street signs, that sort of thing, right, all funded by, you know, the, 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 the... the wealth that had flown out of uh, flowed out of the mine there. They built a new school. They set up a fire brigade. They strengthened the police force and started to crack down on stuff like the rampant prostitution that was going on in this area there like that. Um, and the mining company, which, uh, again, wasn't doing a lot of mining at this stage, they're still extremely keen to prevent the Belgians and the Germans from properly annexing Neutromyris Net because, remember, they're still operating in a tax-free jurisdiction and they'd very much like to keep it that way. Uh, thank you very much. So... They're helping to fund stuff too. They work to construct a power plant to keep themselves in business. And additionally, on top of all of this, on top of all of this area to, you know, industrialise or, or bring, you know, bring uh, Neutral Morris Net into the 20th century from, a, from this perspective, there's also another enormously lucrative fundraising effort that's being put on by the neutrals here. The neutral government decides that they want to establish themselves as a gambling haven as well 
as a tax haven. Tiny little Monaco had made stacks and stacks of cash with their very lax gambling laws. And seeing as uh, the outdated Napoleonic Code doesn't ban gambling, right? The rest, of, unlike you know, the rest of the European nations, they've all banned it. So we've gone to a point where the 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 backwards nature of the Napoleonic Code is now so far behind the times. It's now ahead of the times because we've gone from gambling being okay to being outlawed, and now the Napoleonic uh, Napoleonic Code is ahead of the times by allowing gambling again. So because because of this, right, Neutral Morrisnet, they reckon they're in a great spot to set up a highly lucrative gambling industry. They have uh, they invite some uh, former Belgian casino operators who had been ruined by uh, the uh, by, by Belgium doing exactly this, outlawing gambling. Uh, they invite them to come over to Neutral Morrisnet in 1903 and to set up this great big casino in a luxury hotel there. And this raked in the cash like you wouldn't believe. People were cruising into Neutral Morrisnet for from all around Europe to come and play at the tables there at the Hotel Berghof. They're having a great time. They were just absolutely pissing away their money into this tiny, tiny little scrap of a territory there like that. It is going bloody excellently. They're bringing in that much money. It's unbelievable. However, just like the boring parents that they were, Belgium and Germany, they don't care for this very much. They don't like too much fun is being had, too much money is being made. And once again, they open up the old Napoleonic Code, to try to find some way to prevent the gambling from happening. Now, of course, no mention of gambling made in the Code, so they have to find a rather creative solution to prevent people from coming in from all around Europe and spending their money uh, in, the, in, these, uh, you know, in, the, in the casino, the gambling, uh, gambling havens there like this in Neutral Morris Net. And they find one of the most ridiculous resolutions you, you could ever possibly imagine. A truly ridiculous law in the Napoleonic Code, banned the gathering of more than 20 people in one place. And so, in September 1903, using this law as a pretext, the Belgian and the German police, they raid the casino, they come in, quick head count, oh, more than 20 people, that's banned, that is outlawed by the Napoleonic Code, clear off out of here. Now, gambling still existed on a smaller scale, of course, as long as there were 20 or fewer, or maybe even only 19. You know, you got to bounce there quickly, head count, no, only 19 people. It's good. You're good to go. You can get on the roulette table. Don't even worry about it, right? But because large-scale gambling was banned by this, uh, well, you know, in practice banned by this archaic law about gatherings of 20 people or more, the gambling industry was, yeah, it was shut down. And uh, it, it, it just it never really uh, recovered uh, as a result of this. Now, one final thing. One final interesting thing took place in uh, took place in Neutral Morris Net before the onset of the First World War. Now, Dr. Molly of the postage stamps, you remember him? He met a fellow at one point named Gustav Roy. Now, this bloke Roy, he was very big into Esperanto. You may have heard of Esperanto. It's a language that was invented. It's a it's a constructed language. Uh, it was invented by a bloke named Leisure Zamenhof, and it was designed to be an international auxiliary language, like a secondary language that everyone on Earth would speak in addition to their native language. So no matter where you went, you'd have a common tongue with uh, with people that you met. Now, Dr. Molly, he's a big fan of this. He, decide, he loves the sound of Esperanto, and he decides that he wants Neutral Morrisnet to become the first place where Esperanto would be the native language of its people. And as a result, right, he's convinced, he's convinced that Esperanto is going to become a worldwide phenomenon and as a result, neutrals began to learn Esperanto and school lessons were even given in Esperanto from 1907 onwards. And, you know, this doesn't sound like very much, but it's estimated that 3 to 4% of the population of, of Neutral Morris Net were able to speak uh, Esperanto in a very short amount of time. So it, it was catching on, I suppose you could say, even if it was in the very early stages. Unfortunately, once again, this was not taken very kindly 
by the Germans. German was the most widely spoken language in neutral Morrisnet. I'm not sure, 100% sure it was the official language or not, but it definitely was the de facto language of this of this region. And uh, because of this, right, uh, they, you know, the Germans, they're not very happy about hearing that Esperanto may supplant German as the lingua franca of, uh, of this uh, little territory there. So they take action. They encourage German speakers to move to Neutral Morrisnet to try to, you know, overwhelm the growing influence of Esperanto. And then they actually went as far as cutting telephone-wise and refusing the delivery of mail to this area, right? So Germany is doing more or less everything it can to try to hamstring this little region. Of course, you know, the zinc dollars have dried up. The zinc dollars have dried up and, and, and the, the, the conflict with Belgium is becoming less and less important as we head, you know, further into the, the second decade of the 20th century there with, uh, you know, international political tensions rising, with Europe becoming this powder keg that ended up exploding into, uh, into the First World War. And at this stage, I think it's fair to say that Germany wanted to force the issue and divide Neutral Morrisnet once and for all. It had, you know, it had been almost a century since the negotiators in 1816 had, you know, decided to deal with it later, after all, and Germany decided that it was, enough was enough and that was, there was no reason for Neutral Morrisnet to exist in the way that it did anymore. Ultimately, however... It wasn't smuggling or gambling or even Esperanto that undid Neutral Morrisnet uh, as this sort of a unique geographic and political feature of Europe. Instead, it was quite simply the First World War. On the 4th of August 1914, Germany invaded Belgium and also marched into Neutral Morrisnet to capture it as well. And of course, the neutrals had no army. They had no way of defending themselves. And so it fell, this little territory, it fell in inverted commas, I guess, as much as any, any area like that can fall. In half an hour, the uh, the lack of fighting did mean that Neutral Morrisnet was largely f- spared. You know, the ravages of war, the damage that was wrought on that part of the world was, you know, largely missed. This tiny little sliver of land that was Neutral Morrisnet. But all the same, Neutral Morrisnet was no more. And it would never return to its previous position as this uh, neutral political outlier. The First World War was fought. And of course, uh, after, the, after Germany's defeat uh, and after the Treaty of Versailles, uh, the region that was once known as Neutral Morrisnet was uh, officially ceded to Belgium once and for all. With the defeat of the Germans, uh, they lost their in, any hold they had on the territory and it became officially part of Belgium. And all of the people living in it, all the neutrals living there, they received Belgian citizenship. So over a hundred years after some deadlocked diplomats kicked the can down the road, the question of Neutral Morrisnet was finally answered at the end of the First World War. But today, today Neutral Morrisnet, or what once was Neutral Morrisnet, is a tiny little corner of Belgium, tucked away right down there in the, in the southeast corner of Belgium, where you can find the famous three-country point. It's a border between. It's a point of the border between Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands. There's a little monument there that you can walk around. You know, go in a little circle between the uh, the three nations, just like that. And even though Neutral Morrisnet doesn't appear on the maps anymore, there's something that that I found that that's that's really quite incredible, quite amazing about this this little footnote of history here. Even with the borders of Neutral Morrisnet consigned to the scrap heap of history, you can still today physically see where this weird little slice of history existed. And it's not because of border posts, it's not because of demarcations made by, you know, signs or lines on the ground or anything else like that. If you look at any satellite image, any modern satellite image of the three country point, if you look just to the south of this area here, in this uh, between Belgium, the Netherlands, and uh, and Germany, there like that, you will see the land that was once Neutral Morrisnet clearly delineated by 
of all things, the colour, the texture and the shape of the forests. The upper point of the borders of Neutral Morris Net, right at the top of that little triangle there, they are clearly demonstrated. You can see them so, so clearly in any satellite image by the ways that the trees have grown over the years or the way that they've been felled or cleared out of the way for farmland. This triangle that used to exist as Neutral Morris Net is clearly visible in the landscape, in the forest there like that. The maps have forgotten, but the forests remember. This weird little slice of land, this weird little slice of history is still written today in the trees. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Neutral Morrisnet. And a big thank you once again to Michiel... Gee, <laughs> I'm not even going to try again. I'm so sorry, Michiel, uh, for sending in this uh, as a as a you know a suggestion for a topic for a podcast. So thanks so much for for your, for that, Michiel. I, I really appreciate your input. If you want to follow in the footsteps of Michiel, you can do that by sending in an email to the show. Uh, go to halfhousehistory.net and you'll find a little contact form there. And uh, I do read all the emails. I do to, I do try to reply to all of them as well. Um, if I haven't. Uh, please just email me, email me again, I'll, I'll, and I'll, I'll try to get to you and and let me know that you know you've you've tried in the past. And I, I, I do try to get back to everyone who gets in touch with me. So uh, thanks so much to uh, you know to the people who are getting in touch and the just the silent listeners as well. I've uh, I've noticed that yeah people have been picking up this show from various quarters and and I, I bid everyone welcome old 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 new listeners alike. Thanks so much for for tuning in and having a listen to my dumb little history podcast every week. I can't say how much it means to me to have uh, so many people at my back, especially. The Patreons. I've had so many people sign up with Patreon recently, and I tell you what, I'm just floored by it. Thank you so much. And once again, if you're a patron and you've got some idea of, of, of some rewards I could uh, to put towards the Patreon, because I've got no idea what kind of stuff people might be interested in, please get in touch with me uh, via that contact form or f- through Patreon itself, and uh, and I'll see if I can sort something nice out for everyone who's uh, chucking my na- money at me like that, because it, it does mean so much. Anyway. That's enough boring uh, nonsense here, enough housekeeping rubbish here. I'm going to close out the show as usual with a, a question posed on Reddit. We talked a little bit about Napoleon uh, to begin with, and of course the Napoleonic Code that that governed the uh, uh, you know the, the legal system uh, of Neutral Morris Net throughout the thing. But not the only thing that's named after Napoleon, of course, not the only thing that's named after the the, uh, the French Emperor there. And uh, Reddit historian Always Be Texton has a question about Napoleon here. They they want to know would Napoleon still have developed his Napoleon complex if his asshole parents didn't name him after it. <laughs>